This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our new celebrity guest scorer who wrote the book, You Are Tearing Me Apart, Lisa! The Year's Work on the Room, the worst movie ever made, which you can get wherever books are sold. Adam Rosen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Adam, for all our new first-time guests, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and why you love movies. Happy to. I am a freelance book editor and writer based in Asheville, North Carolina. And I sort of, I mostly edit nonfiction books, but I do some freelance writing, some in pop culture, criticism, some journalism. Kind of, I'm kind of a dilettante. I do a whole lot of different stuff. Yeah, so in 2013, I wrote I wrote an essay for theatlantic.com about The Room. It was right when the Disaster Artist book came out. And then I suggested, I raised the idea, is Tommy Wiseau, the creator of The Room, an outsider artist? Should we look at him not as this weird eccentric guy which he probably is but as someone who has this is sort of a an artist with his vision that no one else understands and i sort of tried to make that case there that article sort of took off and from there five years later (laughs) came up with a book proposal for for the book of essays great so what is your favorite movie and why it's funny when i saw it i was like i need need to think about this um because it's sort of hard to say, but I, I think I always come back to the Big Lebowski. Okay, it's sort of uh, sort of a cliche, because I think for me it's kind of like The Simpsons. It works on just just so many levels. You have the obviously sort of uh, slapstick absurd angle. There's lots of funny lines. It's very it's very silly in lots of ways. You have all the characters that are sort of over the top, but if you go a little deeper, you have all sorts of interesting things. You have the sort of if not spoof, you have the play on sort of Raymond Chandler-esque novels and the sort of private eye, private detective story set in L.A., sort of noir angle. And then you have sort of, it feels very of the 90s as well. There's like a ringing cell phone that's this big and it's set, it's set against the time of the Iraq War. And then it has these characters who are all sort of, grap- they're all sort of boomers who are grappling with, uh, let's say, the changing world. And sort of it has, it's sort of telling the, the story of these kind of, these guys, you know, Walter's a Walter's a vet, so post Vietnam, and then the Big Lebowski is sort of a, a, a radical in the '60s. It's just to me, it's just sort of the most American movie. You couldn't possibly create a more American movie. It's just it's it's the perfect accumulation of uh, cinema, art, film, literature, and it's just really damn funny. <laughs> it's just so funny. Yeah, I don't think we've had that be anyone's favorite before, uh, at least from one of our guests, but I've heard that a lot as a, a common theme of people's favorite movies. It's certainly one up there that I'm going to be excited to do eventually on the show. Yeah, you should. And there's a whole another book about it, just like mine, uh-huh. by the same press called The Year's Work in Lebowski Studies. Mine's The Year's Work in the Room, because my book is basically a shameless ripoff of this book. <laughs> That's pretty much how I got the idea. I read the book on the Big Lebowski and then came up with this idea for the room. And borrowing a structure, never a bad idea. Yeah, indeed. 
So this question feels a little ironic, but what makes a good movie for you and why? Yeah, that is a good, that is a, a, a tough question in the sort of context of this conversation, which is about the best, worst movie. So is it a good, bad movie? A lot of people would say that it is. And one of the actual, one of the essays in the, in the book, and just to, just to clarify a little bit, I was the editor of the, of the collection. So I put it all together and I contributed an essay, but there's also 16 other contributors to it who sort of tackle different, different topics and different themes and stuff. And so one of the contributors talks about compares the room to vertigo, which as you guys know, it's set in San Francisco. It has a protagonist named Johnny who's chasing this blonde woman kind of like in the room, same thing, except it's Lisa and it's Johnny. And so he said they're two of his favorite movies of all time. And he sort of readjusts what we think of as good quote unquote. He sort of, let's say interprets maybe good as pleasurable, which is why the room is so much fun for people. It's very pleasurable. And so that is one side of the coin of a good movie. So in that way, if you, if you go by that way, you could say that the room is maybe it's kind of good because it's very enjoyable. That said, it's sort of, it's obviously technically terrible. It's a catastrophe. So I guess for me, a good movie is kind of all the cliches, rich characters who are complicated, a, a decent pacing that kind of that doesn't bore you really incredible cinematography can make it good. You know, the big Lebowski <laughs> has all this stuff. I guess Vertigo does, although I find a lot of the Hitchcock stuff, honestly, very, very slow and kind of plotting. And I'm, I'm not actually the world's biggest Hitchcock fan, especially at Vertigo, which I fell asleep watching. That segues immediately into our discussion for the evening. For our 152nd episode, we ironically discuss the movie widely considered, as you mentioned before, the best worst movie ever made. The Room from 2003, directed and written by and starring Tommy Wiseau with Greg Sestero, Philip Haldeman as Denny, Carolyn Minot as Claudette, Robin Paris as Michelle, Scott Holmes as Mike, Dan Janjian. I hope I got that right. I think it's Dan Janjigian. Yeah, Janjigian. It's, a little, it's a little challenging. I think it's Janjigian. Which, to be honest, is more explainable than somebody whose character is simply known as Chris R. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anyone referred to by a last initial other than in, like, fourth grade when you had two Eric's. Right, exactly. And Kyle Vogt as Peter. Recognition for this movie? The Room premiered on June 27, 2003 at the Lemla Fairfax and Fallbrook Theaters in Los Angeles. IFC described Wizzo's speaking voice in the film as Borat trying to do an impression of Christopher Walken playing a... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even get through these. <laughs> playing a mental patient. It's brilliant. The Guardian described the film as a mix of Tennessee Williams, Ed Wood, and R. Kelly's trapped in the closet. <laughs> Uh, I knew I would break. I, I just couldn't. A number of publications have labeled The Room as one of the worst films ever made. An assistant professor of film studies was the first to describe The Room as the Citizen Kane of bad movies. Originally shown only in a limited number of California theaters, The Room quickly became a cult film due to its bizarre and unconventional storytelling, technical and narrative flaws, and Wiseau's off-kilter performance. Although Wiseau has retrospectively described 
the film as a black comedy, audiences have generally viewed it as a poorly made drama, an opinion shared by some of the cast. Although the film was a box office bomb, sales and notoriety significantly increased in later years. The disaster artist, Sestero's memoir of the making of the room, was co-written with Tom Bazell and published in 2013. A film of the same title based on the book directed by and starring James Franco was released on December 1st, 2017. The book and film received widespread acclaim and numerous award nominations. The Room currently holds a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 9 on Metacritic, and a 2.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So let's start here. Adam, you literally wrote the book on this movie, or as you mentioned, you kind of edited most of it, but it has to have some important meaning to you. What makes this such a captivating movie to write a whole book on it? There's there's nothing like just getting a bunch of people together who haven't seen it and then popping in the DVD. They have no idea what's what's what they're about to behold and seeing their reactions. It's just it's so it's so remarkable that somebody created this. It just feels like uh, there's nothing else like it. It truly is one of a, one of a kind, and it kind of sticks with you. And I think for me, the bigger thing was aside, kind of like the Big Lebowski, but in the opposite way. There's so many layers to it. It's a lot more than just a funny, dumb movie. I think it's really interesting because it's this guy who had total creative control and created this movie of the sort of fantasy of what he thinks America is. And so it's really interesting to sort of explore that. And there turned out to be a whole lot of material on it. So you would say it's a unique experience that needs to be shared? Definitely, definitely. You don't watch The Room alone. I mean, you could. I watched it several times alone when I was doing research. But it's a part, it's a fun movie. It's something you do, you do with friends to have a good time. So, Dad, is this the worst movie you've ever seen? Boy, I racked my brain. And to be honest, I'll say no. This is a really bad movie, and I expected it to be a really bad movie. I find movies that try to pretend that they're a good movie that are bad that I find much worse. And, I mean, the the movie that is, like, on my all-time bottom is a DiCaprio film with... Um, uh, oh, if you say Revolutionary Road... Yes. I'm just, oh, my God, I hated wow, that film. really? Oh. Huh. Oh. Interesting. Oh. Huh. It is. It, it To me, it <sighs> was like nails on a chalkboard going through that film. It was just... So many, I mean, everybody in the film was unpleasant to, to spend any time with. I would just want to run away from them. And I actually did and didn't finish the film. It's very <laughs> seldom that I do not finish a film, even if I don't like it. That's one that I'm just like, I don't want to know the ending of this. I don't care. I don't like any of these people. This, I thought it was such, so bad. It, it's kind of reminding me of, like an auto accident, how everybody has to slow down and crane their neck. No, to me, and I thought this would have been the more apt example because you love bringing this up. It's so bad. It's kitschy and fun. Yes. It's like dogs playing poker. That's it. (laughs) Or Elvis on black velvet. Fine. I always wanted to have one in the house. Your mother forbid me. Well, that or your dancing Santa, which we did finally get you. Yep. You had to have that. But to me, I think there are much worse films because I remember there was a phase in college that I think everybody goes through. And I kind of grew up in that wave of the R-rated comedy boom 
with Wedding Crashers and 40-Year-Old Virgin and Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Step Brothers, etc. It's like the same five guys in all those movies. Yeah, even The Hangover. That might have been like the last of that real era, though. But even so, I would watch probably the crappiest R-rated comedies that you could ever find during college, just trying to look for the next even halfway decent one. And I recollect, I think I still have the DVD. I don't know why, other than I bought it at like a closeout bin. But I think the film was named Miss March. <laughs> it is truly awful. It's not funny. And it should probably have been taken out and burned at some point. But I just don't have the heart to do that to a DVD that I've probably been carrying around through at least like seven or eight different moves in my life. Well, I'll throw one out too that's probably worse. And it was not Ishtar? supposed to be. No, I actually liked Ishtar. I'm talking about Caddyshack 2 with Jackie Mason. <laughs> it is so, so bad. I'm going to have to watch this. I probably saw that as a kid. Dad, neither of us really has much of a relationship to this film other than I think we experienced it through the Disaster Artists from 2017. I remember listening to a couple of interviews ahead of that and then when the movie came out, it has to be one of, I think, the funniest films of the last, like, decade. Oh, yeah. So, Adam, what is your relationship to this movie? That's a good question. I'm just a guy, I guess, who sort of became semi, semi-obsessed semi with it. So a friend of mine started sending me clips about it when it started sort of picking up in the late 2000s. And uh, he was living in L.A., so he knew about it before a lot of people, before a lot of other people did back when this sort of thing was a little bit more regional. And then he just sent me some clips and then to me and a few other friends, and we were just, our jaw just sort of dropped like the rooftop scene. Oh, hi, Mark. I did not hit her. I did not. And then when he throws the water bottle, which is sort of a room, a room legend. Yeah. If you look on YouTube, these, that clip, I think is like 10 million views <laughs> or something. And uh, it's in the outtakes of the, of the disaster artist movie. And so it was just kind of like, wow, that's crazy. So we ordered a DVD of it eventually and got friends around. And then our jaws just sort of dropped. There's there's two four-minute sex scenes. And no, there's a third four-minute sex scene. Yeah, no, actually, there's a fourth. So it's just incredible. From there, went to uh, went to a viewing maybe at midnight, late at night in the East Village in New York, where I was living, living at the time. So really just a fun social thing. And then when I was writing that article when the, in 2013, when the disaster artist, the book actually came out that the movie was based off of, I wrote that article. And then as part of my research, I realized that a lot of people were actually teaching the film in film class, including the guy who you mentioned who dubbed it the Citizen Kane of bad movies. He actually is a contributor, contributor to the book. And so he actually teaches it in his film class. He teaches his students what not to do when they're making films. Because it's a really good way for them to see, you know, amateurish mistakes. And so he said, truthfully, it's a really good teaching tool because a lot of them can see themselves in Tommy Wiseau's mistakes because he was a complete amateur. He had nothing, no idea how to make a film. He just had money. And so he tried to create it himself. And so it has all these technical errors, which are very easy for him to point out. Whereas if he's trying to teach them watching a more professional movie, it's very hard for them to see the errors because it looks so good. It would have been a blast to watch this with a group of people from the village. Yeah, it was great. It was it was fantastic. I think Tommy was actually there that night, too. Wow. Cool. Yeah, I dressed up. There's a picture of us in the book. You'll see it. It's in the introduction, me and a friend. I'm dressed up as Mark, and he's dressed up as Tommy. So it was, you know, it's, it's the whole Rocky Horror Picture Show vibe, really. It's just people being raucous and sort of 
naughty hmm. to the stage. It's really fun. Yeah, I don't know if we've had any of those here in Wisconsin, but it'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, it feels like Madison would be. It's you know, like on the college circuit type of type of place would be would be a place that has it. But you can look, go to the roommovie.com and then you can see they have these things all over the country, all over the world. These viewings. Maybe something to pr- propose for the uh, late International Film Festival. Oh, God, we yeah. attend. Uh, they're doing Rocky Horror on Saturday night of the festival. <laughs> okay, that's fun. But yeah, it would be. I mean, my thesis is that it's like the new Rocky Horror. It's the Rocky Horror for our for our generation, kind of. Normally, we ask what this movie is about, but it's my contention that fuck if I know because I don't think there's really much subtext to this movie. <laughs> Everything seems to be rather overt and out in the open. And so maybe you can give me a better understanding. What do you think this movie is about? I think in some ways you're hundred percent correct and you're hundred percent wrong. <laughs> you're mostly hundred percent. And I'd be okay with that. You're mostly hundred percent correct. Yes. There is no, absolutely no subtext. In one of the scenes in the movie, you may remember this, a character says something. Lisa says something when she's talking with her, with her friend, her girlfriend, Michelle, and Michelle says, Oh, my point of view, your point of view is so different than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly something you say to someone when you're having a debate. So there's no, you know, he doesn't understand the idea of implication or dialogue or subtext. So everything you see is kind of from the from the evil genius brain of of the creator, tell me we so. And so on one hand, yes, maybe it's just that simple. It's just the, his uh his dark tragic love triangle that he says claims that the movie is. The sort of essays in the book, though, as you'll see when you dig into it, come up with lots of alternative possibilities and interpretations of it, some of which I think are sort of wacky and out of this world, and some are sort of plausible. So let's get a little more background on the film then. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Johnny is a successful banker who lives happily in a San Francisco townhouse with his fiance, Lisa. Johnny seems to have it all, a bunch of friends including closest friend Mark, and a beautiful fiancé of five years, Lisa. One day, inexplicably, she gets bored with Johnny and decides to seduce Johnny's best friend, Mark, and nothing will ever be the same again. I should have had you introduce it as future wife instead of (laughs) fiancé. Apparently there's a backstory, and I don't know if I put it in the did you know section here, but apparently Johnny did not want any foreign language spoken on the set, and so he refused to use the word fiancé because it was in French. <laughs> well, you know, that's incredible. I feel like I've dug into every nook and cranny in the movie, um, and I consider myself one of the world's foremost authorities on it, and I did not know that. So in other words, the, uh, the caterer did not have pâté. <laughs> no, no, and absolutely not. Like he would freak out at just the smallest mentions of things. And I think some of the cast and crew used to like fuck with Johnny. Well, excuse me, Tommy specifically by saying like certain Spanish words or whatever else just to rile him up because he was so maniacal on the set. Thanks for that chestnut of information. I'm going to I'm going to pull it out with uh, with other people talking about the room and friends. Excellent. So did you know? According to Greg Sestero, Tommy Wiseau submitted the film to Paramount Pictures, hoping to get them on board as a distributor. Usually it takes about two weeks to get a reply from such a studio. This movie, however, was rejected within 24 hours. (laughs) Did you know? 
According to Tommy Wiseau, Denny had some sort of mental disorder which explains his behavior in the film. He didn't bother mentioning this to Philip Haldeman during production, though. Did you know? Shot simultaneously on 35mm film and high-definition video, Tommy Wiseau wanted this to be the first film to shoot in two formats at the same time, so he had a custom mount constructed to house both cameras, not realizing he would need a different crew and lighting setup for each. He also purchased the cameras instead of renting them, as film productions usually do. The cost of the HD camera itself was $100,000. Did you know? Tommy Wiseau was adamant about the shot of him getting out of bed and walking naked to the bathroom. Quote, I have to show my ass or this movie won't sell. He did numerous takes of the scene, refusing to move on until the crew demanded he do so. Editor Eric Chase later tried to convince Wiseau to cut the shot, claiming it scared his wife. <laughs> Sad to say, a lot of that I did not know. And and I've read The Disaster Artist, seen the movie, you dug into the scholarship, but those, I believe every single, every single thing you've said. There's just going to be so much material on this. It's a treasure trove, and I've got several more here. So did you know? According to the disaster artist, Tommy Wiseau is fascinated by vampires and enjoys cultivating the impression that he is one. Greg Sestero recounts how, early in production, Wiseau approached cinematographer Rafael Samaja with a new scene. I want my car to fly off the roof and into the sky. It's just possible side plot. Maybe Johnny is a vampire. Wizzo eventually dropped the idea after learning that this wasn't possible on the production's budget. Did you know? After low ticket sales, the film was almost immediately pulled from cinemas. Tommy Wiseau paid to keep the film playing in one cinema for two weeks so it would be eligible for Oscar nominations. This proved to be fruitless, though, as the film didn't receive any nominations. Ironically, The Disaster Artist, the film based on Greg Sestero's book, received one Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Did you know? During the Love is Blind scene, Peter seems dazed and frequently reaches out to touch things while moving around the room. This was because Kyle Vogt had struck his head on the spiral staircase while rehearsing and suffered a concussion. Tommy Wiseau, who was angry with Vogt because he was about to quit the film and honor a prior commitment, wouldn't let him leave for treatment. Did you know? Tommy Wiseau enjoyed filming the love scene so much he decided to create the second love scene with recycled and unused shots from the first, which is why the candles are already lit when they arrive, and randomly insert it later in the film. Did you know? Carolyn Minot had always wanted to act, and this was one of the only parts she could get. As such, she gave it everything she had, even nailing a scene right after being hospitalized for heat stroke. And finally, did you know? Mark... Greg Sestero, was named after Matt Damon. According to Sestero, Tommy Wiseau was obsessed with the actor, but somehow misheard his name. Coincidentally, there is a notable actor-producer also named Mark Damon, and it's hearsay whether or not Wiseau actually confused the two. (laughs) And with that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the film about the most violent criminal in the history of the UK, Bronson from 2008, written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, co-written by Brock Norman Brock, starring Tom Hardy. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, gentlemen, best performance. Adam, let's start with you. I, I feel you have a unique take on this one. 
Oh man, I think I'm sort of partial to to Mark. He's so dense and unbelievably undeveloped. It's it's almost comical. I mean, they all they're all one dimensional. But even Lisa, you can sort of in the side conversations, you can get a, a tiny the tiniest bit of depth. You can sort of maybe see where she's coming from. Maybe she's just playing the sort of femme fatale in a in a world that is stacked stacked against women or something. But Mark is just oh man, he's just a big dumb lug. He's he says that he uh, he's very busy. Do you remember the scene in the car when Lisa calls him to have sex? He said, "Oh, I'm very busy these days." <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? It's the middle of the day. <laughs> okay, what guy says he's too busy to have sex? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's 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 the first problem. Uh, totally unbelievable. Sister was a former underwear model, and he met he met Tommy Wiseau at the Stella Adler acting club acting class in L.A. Mark's character is amazing. See, I also had him as my best performance as well, just because I think he's the most likable character in the entire film. Of the three main characters, I think he's the most likable. But, I mean, he has to be one of the most ideal friends to not respond with, like, punching Johnny right in the face for asking him, how's your sex life? Especially while they're out at a cafe talking about work. It's so the the line is so how's your sex life while they're talking about work. <laughs> Apropos of nothing. And is Johnny yeah. the only one with a job other than I guess the therapist guy who is just randomly introduced with no interlude at all? Yeah. And then they say, Oh, you always play psychologist, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> Again, there's your subtext. He's a pretty good actor too. Or not a pretty good actor. He's a pretty good character though. He uh in fact actually so one of the essays do you remember at the end there's a guy with a Hawaiian shirt named named Steven? No, yes. I didn't. Who all of a sudden just shows up. Exactly. So someone pretty much posit- makes an entire essay around the idea saying that he is just a metaphor for the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea who he is. He shows up and then uh and then everything explodes. Yeah. Dad, who's your best performer? Eric Chase, the editor. Because who else could have created something that was even somewhat watchable from this pile of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, I mean, this is going to be very quick. I, there isn't much to say at a lot of these people, but I'm, I'm trying my best to be sincere. My best secondary performance goes to Carolyn Minot as Claudette, because I thought actually she was the most deep character of any of them, even though she has breast cancer, but we never mentioned it again. Her brother wants a piece of her house in the San Francisco, like, real estate market, but she's not selling her house. So it's not like, why? what would he get a piece of? Like, the the corner of one room? As she says also, he sees dollar signs. Yeah, I, I don't understand that one. But even so, I think she's the only one with, like, a moral compass in this entire movie. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with her. Uh, I have Juliet Danielle simply because it was so reminiscent of my college days of watching Skinamax. Because the scenes were just, it was just reminiscent of those days where on Friday nights late, when, you know, they would have those softcore porn films on Cinemax. (laughs) Hey, they eventually started to add in plot and like character development in those. Like in the 2010s, you know. Yes, everything was was Emmanuel or Lady Chatterley. 
every other film on Cinemax on Friday night at 10 o'clock. <laughs> That's why I gave it to her because just brought back those memories. It was just like that. I even commented, I'm like, and, and they're playing the music and my wife peeks around the corner and looks at it and goes, oh, well, okay. I said, it's, it's Cinemax, right? She goes, yeah, I kind of remember that. Um, yeah. What? And then, well, Why was mom watching that? Because when we were first married, we just tur- and I'd stop and go, hey, you want to watch this? No. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was funny. My good little Lutheran parochial school wife. Adam, who was your best secondary? The dog in the flower shop. He was brilliant. He didn't bat an eye. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I wrote this down in my notes, and it's not in my remaining questions. But the flower shop lady actually worked at the flower shop. She was not an actress. And, like, her only two lines in the film are, can I help you? And, oh, Johnny, I didn't recognize it was you. And I'm sorry, if she would recognize Johnny without the sunglasses on, why would she not recognize him with them on? He's not recognizable at all, Tommy Wiseau. Are the sunglasses, like, powerful? It's like Superman and his his glasses? <laughs> See, this film... No. Think about how much you're laughing. This God. film is the gift that keeps on giving, like I said. Dad, most charismatic. Tommy Wiseau. Because I looked up the term charismatic... And your eyes are always drawn on him because you're wondering what buffoonish thing he's going to do next. Uh, Exactly. I can't even add to that. I mean, he blots out the sun every time he's in a scene because he could be doing the most random shit from one minute to the next. Even his body language was bizarre. (laughs) Well, every time he comes and he sits (laughs) down, he has to put his right foot up on a coffee table. He's just be, he's just getting comfortable <laughs> on the film set. Who does that? <laughs> That's it's hard to be. It's really hard to be that. By I would I would have ordinarily said that, but by your definition, Dana, maybe I would go with Denny, who to me is just unbelievably creepy. <laughs> I don't know if it's charismatic, but it's, it's in one of the riff tracks. I think someone caught him. They're like, "Is this the origin story of the BTK killer or something?" Yeah. It's it's so unbelievable. Like he comes up in the first scene. We're two minutes into the movie. He walks up the spiral staircase and watches wants to watch them have sex. His benefactors, and then he takes out an apple. <laughs> minute I saw that apple, I'm like, oh, we're participating in the forbidden fruit. That's quite possible. I think probably he just said I'm hungry, and then Tommy <laughs> said, you know, you can eat you can eat during filming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Man, you caught me there. I did an absolute spit take, and now it's like half all over me. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't hit it on my computer, but my goodness, that hasn't happened to me in years. Oh, Glad to be a part of it. Yes. So, best scene, I have Lisa and Johnny, which also you could add in Denny on that. Lisa and Mark, because that's just weird as hell. Lisa and her mother. The first time, not the second or third time. I have, oh, hi, Mark, because I used to have a boss named Mark, and anytime anyone would walk in and, oh, hi, Mark, I would just giggle to myself. Denny's drug problem, which is the most ridiculous scene in the middle of the movie that has nothing to do with anything else that's going on. 
Johnny's birthday party and Johnny's demise. Dad, what do you think is the best scene? One you missed. The closing credits. <laughs> I, I, I I was so glad when the closing credits came on. I mean, I endured. I got through this film and completed it. And so to me, it was a point of satisfaction. To me, it's got to be, oh, hi, Mark. I mean, really, that thing is cinema gold. Yeah. Adam? It's so hard to choose. It's like picking your your favorite children or your favorite child if you had, like, 30 kids. I mean, it's just, it's truly, from start to finish, just one weird thing after the next. So it's really, really hard. With that said, it sort of gets me every time with the scene after after the party when Tommy locks himself in the bathroom and can listen to, he record, let's say he uh, he's listening with his ear to the door of the conversation between Mark and Lisa, and then he goes and records it, or rather he goes and plays the tape of him recording it. And what he plays back, what he plays back is actually different than what they just said. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see your spit take, Dana. <laughs> oh, God. So it's that oh. combined with, at the very end of that scene, uh, Lisa comes out. Lisa comes out, and uh, and she says to Claudette, "Oh, you know, Johnny won't. You know, Johnny, he won't come out of the bathroom." <laughs> and then uh, Lisa says, "Johnny, come out." And Johnny says, "In a few minutes, bitch." Wade's <laughs> <laughs> point is so sort of out of sync with his character because he's seen as this sort of innocent child. Here he's giving like a one-liner, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Something about it just really kind of keeps me on my toes. And every single time I'm like, wow, what did I just see? Favorite scene? I'll just go with Oh, Hi, Mark again. It's a classic. It no is. need to put too much thought behind it. Dad, favorite scene? Denny and the drug dealer. I, I, I'm still just, there's so many layers to it. I mean, just from <laughs> the mother coming out and chewing him off her, how could you be doing drugs? You know, and, you know like... <laughs> Where did this come from? All of a sudden, somebody comes in with a gun, and it's like, wow. I mentioned before when we were going through the cast list, but again, a drug dealer whose name is Chris R. <laughs> Maybe he just thought it sounded like a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So can I can provide a tiny bit of context to this and at least theorize why they had a drug dealer in it. If you guys yeah, want. Sure. So the room, and I argued actually this in my, in my essay, that the room is sort of a morality play. It's actually sort of, it's really, really old fashioned because it's trying to, it's Tom Wiseau's projection of what moral upright behavior is. And so you have this wealthy banker, he's got his wife who stays at home, he provides for, he provides for Denny as well, this troubled child that Johnny is setting on the right path. And then at the end of that scene later, Denny says, yeah, my, you know, I want to go to school, get a good job and marry, marry my girlfriend and have kids with her. It's basically like the prototypical American dream. And so by showing Denny as troubled, let's say being addicted to drugs, which are bad, by getting mixed up with a violent guy, bad, it shows that Johnny is a moral, good human being for taking him under his wing and helping him and setting him on the straight path. And so basically this entire, the entire movie is, I think the contributors are all pretty unanimous in coming to this conclusion. The entire movie is to show how upstanding of a human being Johnny is. And this is just another way of showing that in a very bizarre way, but that's the logic. 
Well, and up at, that makes sense up until the point Denny says, I want to do your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> you can only go so far with logic in the room. I think we're hitting the limits of it. <laughs> May I offer the alternative opinion, though, that this is really nihilistic because the good guy doesn't win? That's true. No, that... that... Well, the guy, the good guy doesn't. I, I, I don't know where Tommy Wusso is from, but... It doesn't really matter, but... No, my point being that, in essence, we're trying to project Tommy as the moral upstanding character in the movie. He's the guy with the job. He's the guy that's supporting Denny. He's the guy that is trying to help everybody out and support Lisa and her mom and all these other people. But when push comes to shove, none of them want anything to do with him. And Mark and Lisa and Claudette and everybody else leaves him at the moment that he's probably in the worst situation of his life. And so in other words, you could say that it's really a film about nothing that you do morally is going to matter. You're always going to finish last. No, that is a very good point. And again, there's another essay that deals with this. It's, and it actually invokes Nietzsche about it and slave morality. It's a, it's a, I think it's called revenge, reverse revenge, and something else. It's written by a philosopher. So he talks about that, but he says, actually it's the opposite because Johnny actually showing himself to be a martyr. He died. He's a Jesus Christ-like figure. He died because everyone <laughs> wronged him. And so this movie is sort of his way, or the depiction of the events is a way that he is shown to be this incredible, let's say, spotless human being who, I guess, comes out in victory by suffering and then revenge is enacted on the people who wronged him. It just reminds me of the joke I always tell about Russians, which is, the Russian guy comes out, he goes, Today my dog died, my wife died, my house burned only half down. It's a good day. Wow. Let's move to most indelible moment. I think because it's the title of your book, you may agree with me on this, but you're tearing me apart, Lisa. That's a good one. And just for your for your viewers who may not know this, that is a complete 100% ripoff of a James Dean line, minus the Lisa. But in Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean, James Dean is talking with his parents. He's sitting down. You are tearing me apart in a slightly different way. But we so idolize Dean. And so instead of just being inspired by him, he also thought, hey, I'll just you know sneak that in too. <laughs> so that aside, out of the way, the most indelible moment. Come to me next. I got to think about that. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Oh, mine is uh, Denny, Johnny, and Lisa in the bedroom. I'm like, God, wow. Is that incredibly creepy? I mean, what the hell would anybody put that in a movie? Oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks. Now you're, now you're, you're making clear what mine is. I guess mine is the, the fourth sex scene in the movie. <laughs> Just because it could have been the world's best sex scene. But the fact that you have that many for that long, it's just so ruined. Yes. It's, 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 we're not just going to imply that there's love in relationships. We're going to show three minutes of thrusting. <laughs> well, it's pelvic thrusting in a like diagonal fashion. Yes, exactly. In a very strange way. I don't know. I thought maybe he was like trying to go for an endurance trophy. <laughs> right. He's showing his reality, his manliness. It's, it's so, it's so room. Uh, well, that's another good stopping point, so we will take our second break of the show, and we will be right back. 
Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master list of greatest movies of all time, that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com slash Podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 146 movies we've graded so far, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do. Burt Bacharach, 94, American Hall of Fame composer. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Walk on by. Arthur's theme. Best that we can do. Six-time Grammy winner. Appeared in Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Won two Academy Awards for original song in 1970 and 1982. Eugene Lee, 83, American set designer. Worked on Saturday Night Live, Candid, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. He's a multi-Emmy winner for his set designs. He worked on Broadway, and I think he might have also won a Tony. He was also a Wisconsin native. Okay, we're in Wisconsin, if you know. I don't. It just said that he originally was from Wisconsin. At least the article that's, or the obituary that I linked in the uh, website. Okay, Cody Longo, 34, American actor and musician, Days of Our Lives, Hollywood Heights, and uh, Piranha 3D. David Jude Jellicoeur, 54, also known as Trugoy the Dove, American rapper, De La Soul, and songwriter, Me, Myself, and I, and Feel Good, Inc., Won a Grammy in 2006. For anyone that, like myself, has no real history with hip-hop and rap outside of maybe the major pop titles that uh, you can hear on the radio all the time, De La Soul is the name of his rap group. Austin Majors, 27, American actor, was in NYPD Blue, Treasure Planet, and The Ant Bully. James Flynn, 57, Irish film and television producer, Vikings, The Last Duel, and the producer of Banshees of the Inner Shuren. And we also lost Raquel Welch, 82, American actress. One Million Years B.C., The Three Musketeers, and Fantastic Voyage. She's also a Golden Globe winner. I I just happened to be thinking about her this week because... Um, On Pluto TV, they have the Johnny Carson channel. And so I've been watching some of the old episodes of The Tonight Show from the 70s and 80s when I was a young man and would stay up and watch once in a while. It was kind of fun. They had Raquel Walsh on about three or four nights ago on one of them. And I happened to see, actually, she was more, or had more notoriety about her looks than actually anything else. She almost, I would say, was the Kardashians before the Kardashians. She was famous for being famous. Everybody knew who she was and her beauty. And quite frankly, the last scene in, uh, or the 
one of the last scenes in uh, the Shawshank Redemption is her poster. She's Ms. Fuzzy Britches. And so we remember all of these here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to best funniest lines. I'll just start with the uh, obvious one. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Adam, do you want to go? Go ahead. When Lisa says, when she's talking with her mom, one of their multiple conversations, she says, yes, the computer business is very hard these days, mom. (laughs) It doesn't sound funny on its own, but it comes absolutely out of nowhere. You have no idea. Lisa works. She works in the computer business. What does she do? Does she work on, you know, CPUs? Is she like an IT admin? It's, it's, It's incredibly random. I love it. Especially because all you ever see her do during the middle of the day is sweep a carpet. Yes. Go ahead, Dad. Anyway, how's your sex life? (laughs) That was my next one. It's hard to beat that. I hard to beat that. Johnny, you betrayed me. You're not good. You're just a chicken. Cheep, 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 cheep. I just like to watch you guys. Denny. Okay. Go ahead, Dad. Why, Lisa? Why? Why? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. Throws water bottle. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Well, I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. <laughs> it's, I never, I, I'm sorry. It's the only time I've ever found that or breast cancer to be funny. Oh, <sighs> Mike. I have to go see Michelle in a little bit to make out with her. I don't have another one. Okay, I have one last one. Mark, as far as I'm concerned, you can drop off the earth. That's a promise. (laughs) Speaking of Mark, how about this? Leave your stupid comments in your pocket. (laughs) Which, after I saw it, I think I probably said that to people. All seriousness for the, the next five years. Because it's very good if you're arguing with someone. You want them to leave their comments in their pocket. Well, it will definitely shut everybody up. Yes. Well, if you guys are ready, we can start up the Stanley rubric. First up is Legacy. I'll start us off. I have this at a 1.5 for the industry because really it's on the backing of the Disaster Artist, the book. The place that it holds, I guess, as a bad movie legacy, it's hard to say. Within the industry, I know this is made as a joke, but this is easily thought of as one of the worst movies ever made. And so because, you know, there's an obviously connection here with multiple books being written about it, multiple essays, people studying this, there being film festivals about it. I had it at 1.5 for the industry. I have it at three for the audience because I think that this is still somewhat of a polarizing movie. There are people that can watch this and have a very enjoyable time And I think that for me, it's much more enjoyable to talk about the movie than it is to actually watch it in retrospect. So there's maybe a a divided opinion on this because I do think this is kind of a cult following movie. So I kind of went and split the difference by going with a three right down the middle. So I'm at a 4.5 overall for Legacy. Dad, did you want to try your hand? Sure. Because this is used as an example of what not to do so much, I had to give it a little bump up for the industry. 
Um, so I'm going to go with a 2.5 for the industry. Okay. And the fact that this has had such success that uh, as far as being a cult classic and so funny to talk about, I mean, this is one of those situations where it's more fun to talk about what you did than actually having done it. It's kind of like a high school story. You know, when you were in it and you did something with your high school buddies and it turned out poorly, you know, at the time you're kind of like, oh, wow. You know, 20 years later, you're going, oh, it was so funny. And you embellish the public uh, for that reason. I'm going to give it a 2.5 because that's what I think this is, is. So I'm going with a five total. I like the 2.5 for the for the industry, for the reasons that, especially for the reasons that it's being taught film class. I also think in the disaster artists, they talk, well, I, maybe in the disaster artists, from my book, we talk a little bit about how a lot of celebrities are really into it. A lot of comedians, We, I think, you know, apparently Kristen Bell and maybe Paul Rudd used to host viewings. And so it's and obviously Seth Rogen. It's had, I don't know what effect it's had on, the, on Hollywood, but it's certainly at least on their radar. So I think it has had some influence there. Obviously, this is a very self-interested answer, but I would say in terms of the public, I would I would give it like a four and a half or a five because I can't think of really any other movies aside from, let's say, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and that's even less and less these days. They're still having these monthly showings all around the country and all around the world. And we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the movie. There's retrospectives about it. And uh, to me, there's really it's really unrivaled in terms of its cold it's called following and just how much it's currently still showing. Apparently we so made his money back. Supposedly spent $6 million on it. I, you know, he made about, I forgot, maybe a thousand dollars the two weeks he rented the theater. And now I think he's <laughs> getting close to $6 million again, just because of the movie's afterlife. So I think it's had a huge impact on the public. So that is a 5.5 average between the three of us. Impact significance. Dad, I'll let you go first. I looked for it because this is the kind of movie that Roger Ebert would have just absolutely, if he reviewed it, have had an absolute meltdown about having to sit through. Couldn't find anything. So I gave it a one because most of the reviews were bad, but I couldn't find the scathing ones. I really would have loved to have read some of them because, again, just some of those that Roger Ebert gave about how it, you know, life is short. Why did I have to waste two hours of my life sitting through this? Would have made it less, but I went with a one for the industry. Hold on, hold on. It's 97 minutes, not two hours. Let's let's okay, pump the brakes still. a little bit. And then for the public, $1,000 in the theater. And I mean, it had a bit of a life afterwards that kind of picked up within that five-year time frame. So for that reason, I'll give it a slight bump for a 1.5. So I'll go with a 2.5 total. Okay. Adam, did you want to try your hand at this category? That's a, that is a really good question because it's sort of, it had absolutely no impact originally except for, you know, some guy, I think some USC film students sort of stumbled randomly, stumbled into the, into the showing on the, where it was being shown somewhere in the valley, wherever he rented the theater, and sort of reported back to his friends, was like, "Holy shit, you need to see this!" And then, sort of within the film community in, uh, or I'm sorry, the comedy community in LA, sort of got hip to it. Yeah, within the first five years, probably minimal. 
aside from this tiny, tiny little subculture. So maybe like 0.5 out of 5, <laughs> which goes up to a 5 eventually. But that's how it started. Well, and that's the exact score that I had too, because I have a zero for the industry. This made absolutely no impact. Everybody rejected it immediately out of hand. If there have been positive reviews, it's probably after the fact and like several years later where there's kind of a reanalysis of this movie. But I had to only go with a 0.5 for the audience because, I mean, this is, other than kind of creating a small stirring, uh, as you mentioned, regionally for this movie, this wasn't really a big deal where it started really traveling around until the late 2000s and a little bit before that, kind of around the territory where the disaster artist would actually get some recognition for the book because other people had started to see the movie and it started to kind of gain steam and grow as time went along. So we're 20 years removed from this movie. We're just now kind of getting to the place where it has an actual impact, but that has only picked up in maybe the last 10 years since the book came out. So I have a 0.5 as well. So you need help with the math. (laughs) Yes, that's why I use a calculator. So that's a 1.17 for legacy, or excuse me, for impact significance. And uh, that is our lowest overall score for impact significance ever. And I don't know if anybody will top that. All right, novelty. I have a straight zero. There is no novelty to this thing. It is a retread of a retread that's trying to do so many different things I mean, you could maybe convince me to go up a half a point for trying to do the two-camera setup, but that's about it. Man, you are a critic, but it's hard to it's hard to argue with you. The only thing I would say about being a unicorn is that, it, it, to me, it feels like it, it's potentially a unicorn, <laughs> if you define the term very broadly, which is that a movie like this really is a product of its time. Right, you have the sort of access to technology that no one had. I mean, technology, film technology, used to be very expensive. Obviously, first it was made in the studio system. Even if you're an independent filmmaker, you had to get all these people together. You had to finance it. So you just had this guy who had money with his own money and then access to relatively inexpensive film equipment, even the HD camera. I mean, he could have rented it. Of course, he bought it. But so you had this sort of democratization of film equipment, and then plus the internet gave rise to it. And so you have the perfect mix of a cold film. I just don't think anything like that will ever happen again. So that's, that's it's sort of anti-unicorn quality of it, of all these things coming together. No, you will definitely not see something like this again, because we've even more democratized movie making because now everybody can just film what they want on an iPhone. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. And some of the stuff looks really good and professional. Napoleon dynamite was filmed because, um, uh they maxed out their credit cards and used inexpensive cameras to film it. Now you're going to even do it on your iPhone. So, yeah. So dad, what do you have for novelty? Okay. I agree with you all in all regards to it's a mashup, but the simple fact is that somebody who knew nothing at all, what they were going to do, who just happened to have the money to assemble a cast and to shoot a film with no background or knowledge or any idea of how to do a script, okay? At least, at least Orson Welles had oh God, you're going there. I people knew you were around there. him who knew what they were doing. This guy had nothing, all right? So I'm going to give him novelty by just be, having the chutzpah, 
the cojones to do it. <laughs> so I'm going to go with a 1.5 for novelty for somebody who's just a complete novice who has no clue, just going, I'm going to spend money and do it. You're very generous. What was your score, Adam? It was, I guess it was 0.5. <laughs> but I think, I think if I would have gone after you, Dana, I, you would have, you, you, I think you make a persuasive argument. Someone just you could you could have given a monkey at six million dollars and probably who knows if it would have been much different really. You can perfectly change your score yet. I haven't locked them in. In fact, I think I'll probably come up to one. A zero is more for effect than anything else. Okay, all right. So then for novelty, yeah, I'm gonna actually I'm gonna bump it up to a three. Okay, you're good. You're a good attorney, Dana. <laughs> well, that's what I get paid to do. That's a good quality to have as an attorney, being persuasive. So that's a 1.83 average between the three of us. Classicness. Dad, I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> I mean, I, there's so many things in this. The the exploitive nature of the sex scenes. I mean, mm. they took over. <laughs> if you were calculating the amount of the sex scenes in relation to the rest of the film, Wow. I mean, it's probably, what, 25% of the film? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not that much, but you're right. Short of an actual porn, I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find that in a a feature film. It's probably by a factor of 20 from what a typical movie, non-porn movie has. I mean, uh, in the porn films I've seen when I was much younger, this actually has less plot than even they did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think someone talked about that, actually. They said it's like a porn film, but without any of the real hardcore sex. Hey, Lisa did order a pizza. Yes, <laughs> she did. But even that's bizarre. She orders half Hawaiian. Yes, and the other half, I can't even remember, but it was like a really weird concoction. It's extremely weird. Canadian bacon, pineapple, half pineapple, half Canadian bacon. See, everything about the movie is like, that's a novelty. How many movies have a pizza that's half Canadian bacon, half pineapple? So what's your final score then, Dad? I went with a one. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, you know, in this day and age, you know, putting the gun in your mouth and that bothered me and the fight scenes and there was no aspect of any cultural difference within the film itself. I mean, there's just so much that just rubbed me the wrong way. So I can't go more than a one on classicness. See, I can't put it nearly that low because I reserve the one and the point fives and the zeros for like truly the most awful of films. Like Birth of a Nation is what I would derive as a true straight zero for classic. Yes. But to me, if we we're going to do our standard test that we started a seven for just anything that's middle down the line neutral, it's neither like ahead of its time, but it's not necessarily aged poorly. That's where we're at. Now, there are several things about this film that have aged poorly. I'm not really bothered by the suicide nature of it, other than the staging of it. I don't know how there's blood on his shirt when he blew his head out backward. But, you know, that that's just poor movie making. And we've known that for the entire rest of the movie. Why should the last five minutes of a 97-minute film like, be that much different? But the fake domestic violence charge that's just levied in here and as a major plot point, but that they don't actually like visit at any point. They just have the characters continually mention it, but without anybody actually like 
being charged by the cops or like having any real consequences to it just doesn't sit well with me. There's Johnny's jovial nature about being or being in a situation with Mark where he's having a conversation and Mark is trying to seriously convey his issues with domestic violence. And then Johnny makes like laughing remarks about it. So <laughs> there, there are several things. The Denny scenes where he's just kind of like creepily hanging around the really casual attitude, even in 2023, where we've had a lot more open relationships. I just, I don't know how this movie has necessarily fared well. And so I found myself actually at a three working backward. It's not the least classic movie, but it's also not the most classic by any stretch of the imagination. I will also point out the fact that as an attorney, recording a conversation on a phone that you're not part of is a felony. Okay, but there are a lot of random things that are problematic in this movie. Yeah, okay. I'm sure if we had legal analysts on a lot of this, there would be many more things that we could probably come up with. Yeah. Adam, what do you think for classicness? No, it's aged terribly. It's it, it actually gets worse by the year, especially with how people are sort of rethinking relationships between men and women. I mean, the characterization of Lisa is every stereotype of a of a bad woman. She's is obsessed with getting ahead, and she sleeps around, and she doesn't work, and she only talks with women. She's obsessed. She fails the Bechdel test very, very, very significantly. But the computer business is tough. That's true. All right, so I forgot about that. Now I'm contradicting myself because I did mention the computer <laughs> business. Okay, that's never fully explored though. But assuming that she's only doing that, let's say part time or minimally on the side, it's uh, yeah, it's sort of. I mean, it's it's in many ways the movie feels like it's like from the 1950s. It's just this guy who comes in, who who provides and comes home and and you know has sex with his wife. So it's certainly not not aged well remotely. So I guess I'd have to give it. And then so I'm looking at some of the other stuff, though. Are there things that were ahead of its time? No. Is it a comedy? Do the jokes hold up? The jokes hold up, but it was they weren't intentional. <laughs> it's classic in the sense that it's sort of timelessly awful. And I found that at multiple stages of my life, multiple locations, I have kids now, I have more responsibilities. When I first saw it, I was sort of carefree and into ironic stuff and, and nonsense. And it still has a hold on me. So in, the, in that way... I have to sort of negotiate the score. I would have given it a zero, but because of that, I'll give it a I'll give it a three because I think it's it's like a zombie. It's never going to die, and it's uh, it'll always strike you in the heart. <laughs> to torture the metaphor some more. So that's a two point three three repeating between us. I actually think that this does pass the Bechdel test because they have to have a conversation that's not about a man, and there are two different conversations: one about the price of someone's house. And the other one about breast cancer. <laughs> so it barely passes, okay. but it does pass. That's also remarked on in the movie too. Someone talks about the Bechdel test. So I think you guys will like. We'll get more out of the book now that we've we've sort of parsed through parsed through a lot of the intricacies of the movie. And as I said before we started recording, I purchased the book today, and I'm looking forward yeah. to Thanks. peeling through that. So I encourage people to go and buy it. Thank you. All right. Rewatchability, Adam, we usually allow our guests to judge this one first. Rewatchability is out of 10. What say you? Yeah, 10. 10, baby. That's the say what you will about the movie. For me, it's a, it's a sure winner. You're in a bad mood. You want to pick me up. You want to have fun with your friends. 
you want a cold experience in the theater, you can't beat the room. It's 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 a classic in that way. Timeless. For me, I put this one at a two. It was very difficult for me to watch. I think the conversation around it may make it easier as time goes on. This is my first time actually watching the movie itself. I thought The Disaster Artist was wonderful, and I still think it's probably one of the funniest comedies of the last, like, ten years. But part of that has to do with the fact that there just aren't very many comedies being made anymore. But, yeah, this this right now for me is probably a two. I'm not one of the cult members, but it is fun to discuss. So thank you very much, Adam. Well, I started with a one, and then I started thinking about it and kind of started maybe that was too low. And then as we've gone through, if Tommy Wiseau is out there listening to this broadcast, I have a marketing strategy for you. Sell your DVDs with a bottle of bourbon, preferably a 1.75 bottle, and just encourage guys who just need to get together with other guys and drink heavily and put this movie in, and it is much more rewatchable. Because when you're having the bag, this is going to be absolutely wonderful. So I'm going to go with a 6.5 because once in a while, guys need to do that. Have a nice bottle of bourbon, a couple of six packs of beer, whatever your libation is. This movie is one that you can just forget about what's going on in your life. So that is a 6.17 average between the three of us. So for audience score, we had a 78% for Google users and a 47% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 6.25 overall. So to recap the categories, we have a 5.5 for Legacy, a 1.17 for Impact Significance, a 1.83 for Novelty, a 2.33 for Classicness, a 6.17 for Rewatchability, and a 6.25 for audience score, giving us a final total of 23.25. And that puts it dead last on our list. Well, at least the greatest show on earth is no longer last. Nope. It finally got unseated as the worst film on our list. But that's not unexpected. Well, it was dead last. Okay. Yeah, that's not too unexpected. Well, it's just story because when I was a kid, the greatest show on earth was one of my favorite films. And Steven Spielberg. Yes. I used to pretend that I was in the film, you know, on the train and it would crash and all that, like Spielberg did in the, in the uh, Fetterman's. And Fablemans. How many times are you going to get that wrong? <laughs> ah, yes. In the Fablemans. You just like Pennsylvania Senate candidates. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Let's move quickly to remaining questions and try and fly through some of these, but First one up, why was this movie made? Obviously, this is unanswerable. We'll move to question number two. Why does Mark go for Lisa? She's kind of cute and she has nice breasts. Well, Mark is constantly in this moral conundrum where he doesn't want to betray Johnny, but at every turn, he'll say no, and then he'll start making out with Lisa. I mean, really, how many guys that that do you know have actual moral conundrums about this? Well, I don't know about other guys. I did at one time. Yeah, I know. I I understand. But I'm just saying, how many of your friends that you hung around with had these moral conundrums? Zero. All right. So my third question was, 
what is the significance of the character Denny and why did he have a drug problem, which I think, Adam, you've kind of already spoken to. So I don't know if we need to rehash that. And then the obvious, what happens with Claudette's cancer? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Nobody seemed to be really concerned about it. Nobody listens to me anyway, she says. Well, I have my own. Go ahead. Uh, this movie begs remaining questions. I read the little bio that you, they had on Amazon for you, Adam. And it said you're, you have been a contributing writer to The Onion. Oh, well, I wouldn't say contributing writer. I was I, I was an intern there, and ah. then I contributed. I, far from it. I was an intern, and I contributed a few jokes. So now I get to say I have contributed to The Onion. Oh, that's got to be such a blast, though, even to be an intern in that environment. Yeah, it was. The intern tasks were hilarious and R-rated, <laughs> which I don't know how R-rated this podcast is. We put a disclaimer at the beginning of every show, so go ahead, however you want to do it, as long as you're not going to get into legal trouble. Yeah, I mean, nothing too crazy, but so for one of the, one of, so when I was there, they were in New York City, they'd moved from Madison. So for some of the tasks, it's like, you know, most, most companies you work for they're like go get coffee or something i had to go to west fourth street which is like a big sex shop area and get anal beads for, uh, <laughs> for for i think it was for like the headline was like uh orgy not the same after brian's death or something <laughs> <laughs> they just had a picture of the anal beads so there was just all sorts of ridiculous silly things but just getting to hang out with those people and even just kind of make small talk during well they're not a lot of them are really awkward so i'm making small talk but just having a drink let's say having a beer at the office and being able to talk to them it was really funny we want to thank you so much adam for joining us for this episode and we really appreciate having you again everybody the name of the book is you are tearing me apart lisa the year's work on the room the worst movie ever made and you can get that wherever books are sold. We have a link in the episode descriptions to the Barnes & Noble listing for everyone if you want to check that out. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. I love talking about movies and love talking about The Room. There's a lot There's a lot to talk about. Hopefully you'll agree once you dive into the book. Anything else that you'd like to plug or anywhere we can find you on the social media and whatnot? <laughs> sure. Well, the best way to get in touch is just through my website, which is adammrosen.com. M is in Matthew. So that uh, has a bunch of my, my other work and just contact forms. If anyone wants to say hello, I enjoyed the book or it sucked. That's okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll listen to that patiently as well. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Yes. Likewise. Okay, so Dad, remaining thoughts for the week? Uh, I don't have any, really. Um, you and I are going to be attending at least part of the Beloit International Film Festival. That's my hometown. And uh, there's some films on there I'm looking forward to. And I think once we've reviewed or been in attendance, I'll probably make some comments about some of the films we saw. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. I don't really have anything major. I don't think anything I've watched in the last week or so hasn't been a film I've already seen. I kind of got on these, I don't know, Super Bowl ad kicks where like some of the sequels that are coming out, I've been rewatching some of the movies that, that have already come out that would lead up to them. And 
So I've been a little bit on that track at the moment. I still have a bunch of the Oscar films to try and knock out before we get to our preview episode coming up here in the next couple of weeks. And as you said, next weekend, we're supposed to be going to that film festival. So a lot of things coming up here in the schedule coming up over the next couple of weeks. I know we have some exciting guests and we're doing some kind of oddball films, some stuff that isn't necessarily always the classics or the films that are the big names like we've done so far this year. It's a little bit more of an eclectic taste, starting with next week with Bronson, but we definitely are keeping everybody in mind and hoping that you will stay with us over the uh, course of the year as our third season progresses. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. How would you feel waking up in the morning without a window? My window is a steel grid. I have to put my lips against that steel grid and and suck in air. That's my morning, because I got no air in my cell. Next week, we are discussing the film about the most violent criminal in the history of the UK, Bronson from 2008. Written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, co-written by Brock Norman Brock and starring Tom Hardy. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com, sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.